my dad, uh, my father, worked for a New York Life insurance company for uh, a little over 30 years, I believe. He started uh, as an agent uh, selling life insurance, and when he retired, he retired as a senior vice president of the head of agency. Uh, he, he used to like to say he was one of the only people, I think, uh, ending his career in New York City and where he did that had a sociology degree from Texas A&M. And so for him to, to kind of get to that point, if you know my dad at all, and I know some of you know him, uh, he rose kind of to that and he kind of made his way in that way. One, because he worked really hard and he was disciplined and he did those things. But more importantly than all of that, he really uh, loved people well. And he cared about what he did and he believed in what he did and he was really good at it. And uh, as he kind of rose through the ladder, he started to do speeches at these big meetings. They'd have these great big meetings for the company at different times. And so he would do different speeches. And my dad liked to kind of make a grand gesture. And he was always trying to think outside of the box and what could he do. And so in a couple of those speeches, he did just that. One that I remember as a kid, uh, I was probably in high school around the time. But he, he gave a speech where room full of people, like a thousand people in this room, and he's supposed to get up to speech and all of a sudden the, the screens come on and it's him on the screen. And he's like, I'm so sorry, I can't be there tonight. And uh, I, I've asked a good friend of mine to come in my place and to speak to you this evening. And I hope you'll listen to him. And then what my dad did is he came out as a little old man dressed up as an old man, makeup, hair, all the stuff. He was probably, I don't know, my dad, he's in his 50s at the time, but he looked like he was well into his 80s. And he came out and he acted as if an agent at the end of their life telling all the good things that he'd done. And he told real stories. He told stories from personal experience and what happened. But he did it from the perspective of somebody looking back, kind of at the end of their life and what was most important. And it was this really profound speech. And it was interesting that after it, a lot of people came up and a lot of people realized what he had done and that he had dressed up and that. But for years after, he would get people who would contact him and say, can you give me that old guy's number? I want to call them or send them a letter. And they remembered that speech because of the way he did it. And I was thinking about the way in which that works sometimes, that sometimes to do something kind of out of the ordinary, something that people remember that gets their attention. And God does that a lot. Uh, I've been reading in my reading plan. I'm, I'm in Ezekiel right now. And you're reading through Ezekiel and Ezekiel does some weird stuff. He does some weird stuff that God tells him to do to get people's attention. But then I was thinking about even as we get to this last night of Jesus's life, if you've been with us, we're walking through chronologically, we're now to the very end, just hours. We're probably 12 to 14 hours before Jesus will be crucified. And he gathers together in this room with his closest disciples. And what we see today here is the first thing that he does as they gather together is this great big gesture that's misunderstood by all of them in the moment. But what he's doing is so profound and he's teaching them something that is so important that they will undoubtedly remember this the rest of their lives, what Jesus does here. And so I want us to look at this passage as he gathers together with his disciples. They're, they're here to celebrate Passover. It's now Thursday evening. Passover begins at Thursday at sundown about 6 p.m. and goes through Friday at 6 p.m. Jesus gathers together with his disciples in this room in Jerusalem and he begins to teach them and he begins to tell them some important things. But our passage here today in this kind of urgency and in this moment right in these last few hours, he does this act with them that is so huge and so big and he's showing them something that will undoubtedly remain with them. And so I want us to look at this passage together and the way that I want us to look at it is just ask these simple questions. First, what is he doing? Secondly, why is he doing it? And then lastly, 
How do we live in light of this? So what is he doing? Why is he doing it? And how do we live in light of it? And so let's just start with what he's doing, kind of the background and what's happening. Again, this is Thursday evening. You know, where we've been the last few weeks, we were really on Tuesday afternoon into Tuesday evening with what we call the Olivet Discourse. And Jesus is doing all this teaching. The Gospels tell us very little about what happens on Wednesday. The only thing we really get is that Judas sneaks off and he makes plans to betray Jesus. That's really all that we know that happens on Wednesday. And then now we're Thursday evening. And so just hours before Jesus will be crucified. But he gathers together with his disciples in these last moments as he's spending time with them. And he's going to give them a lot of information. There's a lot of teaching and a lot of things that Jesus says in these last few hours. In fact, John 13 through 17, five whole chapters take place right in these few hours here as he's teaching and he's telling them. We'll see this next week as we come back to it. He institutes the Lord's Supper. He prays for them. He prepares them for what's coming. He tells them about abiding in him and what it looks like. He tells them that he's going away and he's going to return and all these things that he's saying. But right here at the beginning, he washes their feet. And I want us to think about what's happening and what he's doing and how he's preparing them. In these hardest moments that Jesus is there with them and he's beginning to speak very poignantly right to where they are in their need. In fact, John tells us that if you look at verse 1 of chapter 13. It says, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And I love the way that John says that, that he has loved them well, but he loved them until the end. But if you've been with us as we've been walking through the Gospels, we've talked about this, particularly in John's Gospel, that when it talks about the hour in John's Gospel, it's always referring to Jesus's death. And so if you go back and you read through the Gospel of John, as early as chapter two, he says, my hour is not yet come. And he's talking about how it's not here yet and it's not the time yet. And then later, around the middle of John's gospel, we really get into that last week. I don't know if you realize in the chronology of John's gospel, the second half of the book is all the last week. But suddenly Jesus starts to say his hour is near. And now here in in John chapter 13, what John points out is that his hour had come. And it's talking about his death is now imminent. Verse 2 tells us that during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, right? So we know Judas has made this plan. Jesus is aware of this. He knows he's about to go out and betray Jesus. He's about to bring the religious leaders to arrest him. And he knows this. And so his, his death is imminent. Judas is about to betray him. All of this is taking place. But then the very next thing I want you to see that he says to him, Uh, Verse three, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all these things into his hand and that he had come from the father and was going back to the father, he rose from supper. And I want to pause there for just a second, because I really want you to think about what it says there when it says that he knew that his time was here, that he was returning to the father. He knows his death is imminent. He knows what Judas is about to do. And he's now about to speak to them. He's about to do this act. He stands up from supper. And I want you to think about what that would be like for just a second. Can you imagine what it would be like if you knew that you had 24 hours? In this case, he's got 12 before he's going to be crucified. But you knew your life was about to end, that it was imminent, that it was coming. What would you say to those that you love the most? Imagine you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you you've got 48 hours to live. Gather together your loved ones, bring them together in your house, spend time together with them, but you need to say goodbye because this is it. 
what would you say? What would you do? What would you want to tell those people that you love the most? And John says Jesus is loving them to the end, and that's exactly what he's doing here. And so I really want you to think about this act and what he does here is he calls them all together. Right? So verse 4, he says, He rose from supper, and he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And so I want you to think about that for just a second. He gets up and he disrobes and he takes off his outer garments and he takes a towel and he ties it around his waist and he puts water in the basin and he gets ready to do this and they're all watching. And even what we see in just a second from Peter's response, they're watching in horror because they're like, what is this? Jesus, their teacher, their rabbi, the one that they believe is the Messiah, has just taken on this position of the most menial servant there is. Even the way he's, he's taken his clothes off and put this, this uh, towel around his waist. And they're all looking at him thinking, what in the world is he doing? I, I was reading this week that not in all of recorded history, whether Jewish or Greco-Roman from around this time, there's not a single case ever of someone higher in society washing the feet of someone lower in society. Just didn't happen. It was so out of the norm. And so when Jesus takes his place like this, they're all looking at him thinking, what in the world is he doing? In fact, it's so out of the norm that if Jesus had said to his disciples, I want you guys to wash each other's feet, right? They're, they're all sitting around the table. And if he said, hey, we're just going to go clockwise. We're going to go around. Everybody's going to wash the feet of the person next to him. They would have been horrified by that. They'd have been like, no, what? You can't ask us to do that. In fact, even if Jesus had said to his disciples, I want you to wash my feet. That would have been beneath them in their station and kind of where they are in their relationship to Jesus. That would have even been beneath them. And so the fact that Jesus takes his place and he ties this towel around his waist and he gets the water and he gets ready to wash their feet. That would have been scandalous. And in fact, you see that it's in the text in the way that Peter responds. Verse six, when he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing to you now, you do not understand, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And so Peter says, no way. What are you doing? Right? Peter always saying kind of what everybody else is thinking, but doesn't have any filter. <laughs> he says it. No, you will not wash my feet, Jesus. No way. And he tells him. Uh, we see that a lot with Peter. I always think of Peter when uh, in these situations. Uh, Proverbs chapter 19. Zeal without knowledge is not good. Peter's always zealous and ready to go, but oftentimes doesn't understand the situation and what's happening. Uh, even here, Jesus says, you don't understand this, but you will later. And he still speaks up anyway and says it. But he says, no, 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 you can't do this. And he starts to kind of push back. But Jesus says, no, if you don't do this, you have no share with me. And he kind of pushed, he says, no, Peter, I'm going to do this. And this has to be the case. And I want you to think about what's happening and what Jesus is doing here. He's showing this incredible act of humility and service to those, his, his students. He's their teacher. And he's doing this and he's humbling himself in this way. And he's not just doing it as their teacher, but he's pointing to something far bigger, something far greater. 
And I want you to think about why and what exactly it is that's happening here. You can go, yes, well, he's, he's higher up and he's the teacher and they're lower societally and that he shouldn't be washing their feet in this way. And you can talk about those things. But I want you to think bigger than that. I want you to think of the biggest possible picture. Think about what Jeff read to us at the beginning from Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being in the born in the likeness of men. This is God himself in the flesh there with these disciples. It's not just their teacher. It's not just a rabbi. It's not just a good guy. It's not just even the one that they think is going to be Messiah and it's going to rule and reign. But this is God himself. The one who created all things, who holds all things together by the power of his word. And he says, I'm now going to wash your feet. And they're all looking at him like, what is happening? How can this be? And Jesus is showing us this incredible picture here. You know, so often when we talk about the incarnation, we talk about Jesus humbling himself and coming to us. We, we're just scratching the surface. We can't even begin to see the fullness of that. Every year around Christmas when we get to the incarnation and we talk about Advent and Jesus coming and what Christmas means, I always go back to the, the passage uh, that, that C.S. Lewis wrote as he's trying to wrestle with this idea. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, if you really want to get the idea of the eternal being who knows everything, who created the whole universe, became not only a man, but before that a baby, and before that a fetus inside a woman's body. If you want to get the hang of it, think how you would like to become a slug or a crab. And I always love the way Lewis says that. You go, oh yeah, what would that be like to humble yourself as a person, to be lower? And that Jesus has done that, and not only has he done that in coming to us, and living the life that we haven't, and being willing to lay down his life in for us. But he comes and he begins to wash their feet. Their dirty, nasty feet as they walked along the dirt roads and all that went with it. And Jesus says, I'm now going to wash your feet. And so why is he doing this? Why would this be the thing in those moments right before he's about to die? The last few hours he gets, why would he choose to wash their feet? Why is he doing this? Look at verse 7. Jesus answered to Peter, What I'm doing you do not understand, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, not all of you are clean. So what is Jesus saying there? What's happening here? Jesus is giving them an image of the gospel and how we grow in it. And he's doing it in a very profound way that gets their attention, and he's showing them. And Peter objects because he's not fully understanding who Jesus is and what he's come to do. We've seen this all the way through the gospels. Right? Over and over, Jesus is telling them that he's come and he's the servant and he's here to serve and not to be served and all these things. And it goes right over their head. He's telling them that he's going to die. He tells them these things over and over. And the disciples are missing it because they cannot fathom the suffering servant coming. They're still thinking of a triumphalist king. 
that's going to overthrow governments, that's going to be in charge, that's going to be in control. And a king doesn't wash his subjects' feet. It's not how it works. And so what Peter is seeing is he's looking at this and he's going, "This no, you can't wash my feet. This is not the way this works. But Jesus always, and what he's doing is continually correcting. And he says, no, Peter. And if you don't allow me to do this, you have no part with me. It's the same thing that he was doing back in Matthew chapter 16. If you remember in Matthew chapter 16, it's the first time that Jesus tells them that he's going to die. It's right after Peter says, you're the Christ. He says, who do you say I am? He says, you're the Christ. And then right after that, in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from Lord, you sh- this shall never happen to you, right? Just like here, you will never wash my feet, right? He says the same thing. You will never die, Jesus. That's not happening to you. And do you know what Jesus says to him? He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are setting your things on earth. He says, you're not seeing what this is about. And you're not seeing the fullness of what's happening. See, when Peter says, you will never die and you will never wash my feet, why is he so sure? Why would Peter have the nerve to correct God himself standing in front of him? How in the world could he be so brazen to do that? Why would he jump ahead and say those things? How could he tell God the way things are? And the truth is, we all do this. And the reason we do it is because our flesh gets in the way. Our prideful sinfulness gets in the way. And we tell God all the time the way things are. We go, no, 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 it's not going to work like that, God. I know that's what you say. And I know that's what your word says. But you don't understand my circumstances. That's not going to work. And we do that sort of thing all the time in our sinfulness. Peter's doing the same thing. He's so caught in that moment. And he's so sure of what he thinks he knows He's so sure that the kingdom is going to work in these ways. And in his limited understanding, he's going, no, 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 it can't work like this. And so why is Jesus doing this? And he's showing them the upside down nature of his kingdom. And even though it's so far removed than their understanding, he's showing him the way it really is. And so Peter says, you will never wash my feet. And he says, if I don't wash you, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. That word part that he uses has the connotation of inheritance. And I want you to think about the way the disciples are thinking. They think Jesus is about to overthrow the government. He's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to be the king. They're going to be ruling and reigning with him. In fact, you see this in the gospels where the disciples are are kind of arguing over who's going to sit at his right hand and who gets to do what and who gets to be part and what that's going to be like. And then all of a sudden Jesus says, if you don't allow me to do this, you have no part with me. What does Peter do? Wash my head and my hands and everything else. It's okay. Like suddenly it's like, yes, yes, wash me. Come on, let's do this. And he he wants to honor Jesus, but he's speaking out of his limited view and he doesn't understand the fullness of what he's after. He's expecting to be ruling with him. And so that's a scary statement. But Jesus is showing something else. He's going much deeper than even what Peter's thinking. Look at verse 10 and 11. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he's completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. What's he talking about? You're already clean, Peter. 
He says, you're already clean. He just, just washing your feet. You're already clean. You don't need me to wash everything. He's saying that in a very literal sense, in the sense of if you've, if you've bathed, it's just your feet that get dirty as you walk on the road. And you just need to, but he's saying something more than that. He's saying something more when he says you're clean, but not all of you. Cause he's talking about the difference of the disciples and Judas who's about to betray him. And he says, you're clean already, but except for one of you. What is he saying when he says that? How are they clean? If you flip over to John chapter 15 and verse three, he tells you, right? This is in the same setting, same thing, just moments later. John chapter 15, verse three. He says, you are already clean because of the words that I have spoken to you. And then he says, abide in my word and you will bear much fruit. Continue to trust me. What Jesus is saying is that you're clean because you've put your faith in me. You're already clean. That's what he says to Peter. You don't understand, Peter. You're not trusting me fully. You're trying to tell me how it is. Trust me. You're already clean by putting your trust in me. And so he's correcting them in the way that they're missing it. You're already clean because of faith in Jesus. Now, part of that is they don't fully understand that at that moment, right? I've said this from the very beginning as we've been walking through the Gospels. There's always three audiences when we read Scripture, right? There's the people that were in the room with Jesus, the twelve. And they don't know that Jesus dies and raises again yet. That hasn't happened. And even though he's told them, they don't have the worldview. It's not big enough to understand what he's saying. And so they're still thinking this is overthrowing governments, right? That's one audience. The second audience is when John writes this down 50 years later. And he writes to a particular audience at a particular time and they say things. And then there's us, 2,000 plus years later, and we're reading it. The difference between John's audience when he writes 50 years later and us and the disciples is we know the whole story. We know what Jesus is talking about. And it's easy for us to watch the disciples and go, those boneheads, what's wrong with them? It's by grace through faith. And it's what Jesus does. And he's going to raise again. They don't know that. And that's why Jesus says, what I'm doing to you now, you don't understand, but you will. You're already clean, Peter. You trust in what I'm doing and you're already clean. And he's pointing them to that truth that we're saved by what Jesus does for us. So what is he doing washing their feet? It's a microcosm of the most important truth in all the world in an acted out lesson. You hear what he's saying to Peter? He says, no, 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 you don't wash my feet. Peter's wanting to go, I wash your feet. You're my rabbi. I do for you. And Jesus goes, unless I clean you, you have no part. Because that's what Jesus came to do. He came to do for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. And when we say, no, 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 I'll do for you, Jesus. He goes, it doesn't work that way. It can't work that way. You can never do enough. You need me to do what you cannot do for you. And so when Jesus takes the place of the humble servant and he takes off his clothes and he ties a a towel around his waist and the God of the universe gets down on his hands and feet and he starts to wash their feet, he's showing them that the only way that you can be reconciled to God is what I do for you. There's no other way. And Peter's going, no, 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 I want to help and I want to do it. Peter's doing what we all do. I want to contribute to my salvation. Let me help. Let me do part of it too. And Jesus is going, it doesn't work that way. 
It's only what I do for you. And so he acts out this incredible lesson for them. And he's showing them that the only way that this works is by what Jesus does for us. You come to faith in Jesus. You're reconciled to God by faith through grace and what Christ has done for you and nothing else. You are clean because of the words he's spoken to us. Because you're transferring your trust in your understanding and your doing and your works to him and him alone. And he says, that's the way you're clean. And that's the way this works. All that we have and all that we are, all that we will ever be is because God served us in Jesus. Right? This is a beautiful picture of everything that he came to do. He's showing them this incredible act that would be imprinted on their brain. And he's saying, you don't understand it, but you will. And they don't have the, the framework to quite see it yet. But you can bet when he raises from the dead and he gathers together again with them, and he goes, remember when I washed your feet? And they all go, oh, yes, we are clean. And it's all because of you. And that's the truth of what he's trying to get across to them. But it's so hard for us at different times to believe that. In fact, you can read this text and he's going to say this. And then in just a second, he's going to stand up and he's going to say, so you should do also. I'm your Lord and I'm your teacher and I've saved you, served you. So you should go and do the same. And we can easily read this text. And in the sinfulness of our hearts, we can miss that he's already said to him, you're already clean. Right? You're already clean because you're trusting in me and my word and who I am. And you've transferred your trust to me. You're already clean. So now go do this. We like to switch that order. We like to go, I'm going to go and I'm going to do for Jesus and I'm going to do these things and then I'll be clean. And then I'll be good with God. That's the sinfulness of our heart that wants to flip it. That wants to make it all about us and what we do rather than what he's done for us. And that is so hard. I mean, think about even this story as Peter's like, you will never wash my feet. Why? Because it's humbling. Right? You ever had somebody try to serve you in a time of need and you're like, no, 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 I'm good, I'm good, I'm okay. It's humbling to ask for help. It's humbling to say, I need help and I want someone to come and come alongside me and do this. But Jesus says, if you don't allow me to do this, to serve you in this way, you have no part with me because this is the only way it works. And so he's showing us, he's teaching us that. But it's hard for us because of the sinfulness of our heart, our pride gets in the way. We want it to be what we do for Jesus rather than what he's done for us. But I'm going to tell you, there's another way in which we miss that, that makes it difficult. If we truly understand the fullness of the gospel, that we are saved by grace through faith and what Christ has done and nothing else, the outworking of that is then there is nothing that Jesus can't ask of you. Because everything you have and everything you are is his. And so we want to go, no, 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 well, I contributed some of it. And part of the reason is the sinfulness of our heart says, I, I contributed some of it and I was a pretty good person and he didn't have to go that far to save me. So then I can keep this part of my life back from me. And it's easy for us to begin to think that way. But Jesus is having none of that. That's not the way this works. I do for you. You're clean because of what I've done for you. And everything that you have and that you are is his. So how do we go forward in light of that? If that's what he's teaching and that's what he's showing us, how do we go forward? Look at what he says in verse 12. When he had washed their feet 
and he put on his outer garments and he resumed his place. He said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right for so I am. But if then your teacher and Lord have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And so what is he saying there? What is he telling us and how we go forward? And the first thing I want you to see is there is an inextricable link between understanding that you stand by Jesus serving you to you serving others. If everything that you have and everything that you are is because Jesus came and served and did for you what you couldn't do for yourself, then the natural outworking of understanding that is you're going to go and serve others. Not because it saves you. Not because you're trying to earn your salvation. Not because you're trying to pay Jesus back. Because that's who you are in Jesus. Right? That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Right? He's telling you to go serve and love others in the way that Jesus has served you. And Jesus says this over and over. That if you know him and you love him, you love others. He says when he teaches the uh, Lord's Prayer, if you forgive others, you will be forgiven. But if you don't forgive others, you won't be forgiven. Why does he say that? It's the same thing he's saying here about serving others. If you understand what you've been forgiven, there's no one that you can't forgive. And there's a link between understanding the grace you've received and then sharing it with others. You're not saved by works. But those works of beginning to do that are evidence that you understand who you are and what Jesus has done for you. And so he calls us to go and to serve others. He's telling us that this is what it looks like. You are saved by being served by what he's done. So serve others. But then the second thing I want you to think about as you go and you begin to serve and love others in the way that Jesus has loved you. That this is so important that we get this is the power of God. This is the way God works. Right, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation. I'm not saying, please hear me, I'm not saying that you go and serve somebody and you do something nice for them, that's the gospel. That's not the gospel. The gospel is proclaiming the good news of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus, that we are saved by what he did for us and nothing else. But as you begin to act that out and love people in that way, it becomes a powerful apologetic for the words that you're speaking. And they go hand in hand together. And so when he says, you go and serve in the way that I've served you, that this is the way people see the reality of who Jesus is. That he uses that as the words are spoken and the spirit opens their eyes and they see people loving and serving in those ways. God uses that to draw people to himself. And so we're called to go and to serve and to love people in the way that Jesus has loved us. He even says, and a little bit after this in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. As you go and you begin to serve and to love others and to forgive in the way Jesus forgives, people go, what is the deal with those people? Why are they so forgiving? And why are they seeking to serve others? And why are they wanting to put others first? And you go, because that is who God is and that's what he's done for us. 
And he calls us to go and to do those things. But then the last part, and I'll end here, is as you do, as you begin to do that, you begin to live in the way that you are created to live. You're made to love God and to love other people, to be outwardly focused, not about yourself, serving others. And so look at what Jesus says there in verse 17 when he says all that. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. When you understand who you are and who you are in Christ and that he's created good works for you to walk in and he's given you this mind that aligns with who he is and you begin to live out of that reality, there is a blessing that comes in following him in all things. You know this, right? I I think I can even prove this to you. Christmas. What's better? To buy a really cool gift for your spouse or your kids or to get a gift? It's no comparison. Right? Am I right on that? Like to give a really great gift that you know someone else wants so much, it is so much more fun. Right? It's because you are made that way. God loves and he loves us. And even in and of himself with the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and they love each other perfectly and outwardly, and we begin to live in the same way, there's a great blessing that comes in that because you were created for this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So often we think about serving and how do I serve and what does that look like? And it's like, oh, I guess I should do that. And it can be duty driven. But when you actually are operating in the spirit and you're seeking to serve and love others in the way that Jesus loved you, it's wonderful. It's way better than living your life selfishly. It's way better than making it all about you. You're glorifying who God is and you're living up inside of that. And so as we end here this morning, I say this because I love you and I want your best. How are you serving? And I mean, here in the local church, but I mean, your neighbors, the people you work with, the people that are in front of you, how do you serve them? Are you looking for ways to do that? Because as you do, as you begin to align yourself with who you are in Jesus, there's a great blessing that comes in that, and it's way better. God calls us to do these things because he loves us and he knows what's best for us. And it glorifies him and it shows those things. And so in our doing, we get to be part of what he's doing. That is a wonderful blessing. Jesus knows all of this and what he's doing with the disciples in these moments. And oh, that we would see that. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. That you have saved us by no doing of our own, but completely by what you've done for us. We thank you that that is true. We pray that we would see afresh today that we are saved by your serving us. That you have come and done what we never could do for ourselves. And we thank you for that. We pray that our lives, we would live out of that reality. That that would be the truth in which we live. That we would live to seek to make much of you and to serve others for your glory and for your name's sake. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.